Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Anyone who listens to Political Rewind with any regularity uh, knows that I uh, grew up in Chicago, uh, a proud native Chicagoan. And I grew up in an era of great American newspapers. We had four daily papers in Chicago, and those newspapers often set the agenda that the community uh, followed and believed in. And they were crucial to how we talked to one another about the issues that mattered to the city. And that's why, uh, really, this morning, I am so proud that I was able to pick up the newspaper, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, maybe, and see the front page of the paper uh, with a huge editorial. It is very rare for an editorial to run on the front page of a newspaper. But uh, this one says quite simply in the headline, get vaccinated, save lives. And um, it's an it's, it's a reminder to me of what extraordinarily important institutions newspapers can be when uh, they take it upon themselves to work in the public interest. So I, I was really thrilled to see this this morning. And I give a shout out to Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, for um, his guidance. Obviously, there were a lot of other people who uh, made this happen. But I want to start the conversation by talking about the implications of a front page editorial at a time when the surge is out of control in Georgia. As a starting point for our panel today, it's Wednesday, Greg Bluestein, political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Um, Greg, uh, as I said, it was really powerful to see this on the front page, a reassertion of the power a newspaper should have in helping drive an agenda. Amen, Bill. And, and I was surprised to see it myself. I had no role in it whatsoever. But I was very, very proud of Kevin and AJC's top brass making that decision. Um, Greg, we're having some in and out uh, issues with you. I'm going to, Sam Burmis Dawes is going to talk to you about resolving them. Uh, but let me then go on and we'll get Greg back into conversation very quickly and introduce our other two panelists today. Professor Adrian Jones, political science professor and director of pre-law at Morehouse College, is back with us. Adrian, uh, I said before the show to you, it's really wonderful that you become part of the political Rewind uh, panelist family. Thanks for being here again today. Thank you so much. I enjoy coming um, and discussing what's going on here uh, in the area. How are things on your campus? Uh, school is, are you back in session? And how, what are the rules for masking or vaccinations on the Morehouse campus? We are back in school. Uh, everyone is being asked to be vaccinated. Uh, there are some exceptions for health and religion. And um, we do have a mask mandate that applies inside and outside on our campus. So um, from what I've seen, people are really trying to keep themselves uh, protected uh, so as to protect the rest of our community. Um, you talked, I think, uh, the last time you were on the show about ba wristbands of different colors that 
indicated oh, yeah. something about whether you wanted people to come approach you or not? Are you still, is that still happening on your campus? It is still happening. I'm not sure how well it's working. I wore mine. I think I remember to wear mine twice. Um, and I don't know that it's uh, been publicized quite loudly enough such that we're sort of actively using it. Um, at the same time, I haven't seen a lot of people on campus besides my students um, as a result of the fact that people are sort of, you know, staying in their own zones. So I'm not positive. But the idea was that if you had a red bracelet, which I do, and everyone who requests one can have both colors, um, this would indicate that you wanted to remain socially distanced. And then if you're using a yellow bracelet, this would mean that you would want to be asked before you were approached. Um, and it's a little difficult, you know, people in person, you know, we do start to sort of gather up at points, but um, hopefully by being vigilant, quarantining folks who do test positive and wearing masks, hopefully we will weather this storm. Well, I mentioned the bracelet because it's a creative, uh, another creative way people are trying to deal with uh, uh, the, the virus. So thanks for telling us about that. We're awfully glad to have Karen Owen uh, back with us, another one of the regulars on Political Rewind, I'm glad to say. Of course, she's a professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. Uh, Karen, you are on a campus where you're still... People can wear masks, not wear masks, be vaccinated, not part of the University of System of Georgia, where the Wild West seems to be the uh, rule of the day. Well, and I am on the Western campus, right, of the Wild West yeah. with the West Georgia. Um, yes, I mean, we are part of the University System of Georgia, which did put out its policy, which is very strongly encouraging vaccinations and mask wearing. And our students, I would say at least half are in my classes are wearing masks. Um, and the university is sending out messages every other day about getting vaccinated, encouraging that. Um, they really do want the students to protect one another and the community because we do want to stay in class and allow the community to gather on campus. Well, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, it's interesting that uh, we will talk in a few minutes about what the reaction has been among some teachers at, in the university system to being on campuses where they don't feel protected. But we'll get to that in a little while. Greg Bluestein, I know you're back with us. I'm going to read just a little bit of this front page editorial, uh, Greg, and then uh, ask you to comment. So, first of all, if you have not seen the paper this morning, whether it's the digital edition or you get the dead tree edition delivered to your front lawn, um, the top of the, of the uh, front page says, state's healthcare system under stress, and then data in bold red. 33% of hospital beds taken by COVID-19 patients, a record. 1,890 adult ventilators in use, the January peak was 1,666. 2,793 state ICU beds in use, 94.5% of capacity. And then the editorial begins this way, Greg. The misguided who refuse to be vaccinated are costing fellow Georgians their lives, plain and simple. Yes, there are some with legitimate medical or religious re reasons for not receiving the inoculation, but the growing tally of the dead or sick is heavily weighted with names of the unvaccinated who paid an irrevocable price 
for their decision. We all know who they are. The co-worker who willingly accepts fiction over fact. The parishioner who believes social media over science. The neighbor who displays an utter disregard for their own well-being and the well-being of those around them. Their foolish decisions affect us all. And it goes on from there, Greg. A powerful statement. It is. It's chilling. And we've got almost 1.1 million coronavirus cases in Georgia now. We're in the middle of this vicious fourth wave. We're, hit, we're hitting new peaks. Just, just yesterday, we hit a new seven-day rolling average peak um, that, that even surpassed the, uh, the last wave in January. So we're at a crisis point, and our hospitals in particular, we, we at the AJC keep on using the word crisis because that's what we're in in terms of our hospitals. You just said it, 95% of our ICU beds are taking up, mostly by coronavirus patients. There's a severe nursing shortage, so even if you hire more, uh, even if you have money to hire more staff, there's no staff to hire, or it's very hard to find uh, nursing staff, skilled nursing staff to hire right now. Um, and it's just... It's, it's, it's only, there's only signs that it's getting worse right now. Um, and meanwhile, we have this solution, you know, it's not foolproof, right? Uh, but it does show, science shows that it does to, uh, severely uh, uh, reduce the risk of hospitalization and severe infections if you get vaccinated. So, uh, you know, we can only echo what the AJC editorial is, which is get vaccinated and save lives. Um, you know, uh, Karen, one of the things that, of course, is so dis disappointing and so troubling about this is the fact that, yes, I get it. There are people, as the editorial points out, who for reasons of faith or particular health issues aren't going to be vaccinated. And yes, we do know that there are issues within the African-American community where skepticism about whether medicine is acting in their best interest or not does have some impact on all this. But by far, by far, I think it's safe to say, this is about politics. It's about the continuing toxicity of our politics and an unwillingness for people on both sides to come together in good faith and recognize facts on the ground, Karen. I think you're right. And it's not recent, just politics. This has been going on for a year now with the virus, that politics came into play, which party you were a part of, or if you want to think of it in terms of which tribe you're assigning yourself to learn information from, then it is actually clouding a lot of what we're seeing, what we know, and people aren't just looking at the facts. I think it goes back to our leaders, our leaders not being divisive, but really talking with a message about what is needed at this point and saying these vaccines are showing effectiveness. And that, too, there are reasons why perhaps you can't get it, like you've mentioned, but also talking to individuals who have had COVID and have antibodies who are also now hesitant about even going to get the vaccine because they don't think they need it addressing those individuals and letting us know for sure, you know, all those that need to be protecting our community. Adrian? I guess I'm perpetually um, disappointed about the cross between politics and the pandemic because I really would appreciate it if our state leadership would take a clear, forceful stance that people need to be vaccinated um, kind of like your statement that the AJC can help to create a, a standard. Um, you know, I think that the governor 
taking a different tact on the pandemic and not simply strongly encouraging um, vaccinating and uh, masking uh, would make a huge difference. Um, it bothers me when there's uh, freedom for businesses not to require masking, um, but at the same time, um, we continue to see uh, coverage that says that our governor has become sort of more um, interested in the pandemic, but I just don't feel it. I feel like it continues to be about his uh, well-being with regard to the base, um, with regard to his relationship to Trump. Um, and I find this very concerning because, you know, we're not going to be available to vote <laughs> if we're not um, healthy and or alive. Um, Greg, nobody has covered the governor as closely as you have over the course of the pandemic. Um, how do you give us some insight? Uh, I, I, he has walked a fine line. He has never gone over to the extremist side of the equation as a Greg Abbott uh, has in uh, Texas or Ron DeSantis in Florida. Um, but he continued he, just the other day, I think you, it was your article that quoted him when he released his latest uh, uh, actions designed to try to mitigate the virus, who said, this is America, uh, this, meaning this is a, a country of choice. Um, but tell us, how do you think he's walked this line, and how, what do you sense about where he stands on all of this? Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to put it, that he's, he's walking a fine line. Because uh, you're right, he hasn't gone as far as uh, the governors of Florida or Texas or some other red states where they've even banned schools or tried to ban schools from enacting mask mandates. Instead, he says it's a local control issue. But even as he says it's local control, and he said it again this week, um, uh, he, he is restricting or trying to restrict local governments from, uh, from, from taking more assertive action. You know, he, he, he signed that executive order um, a few weeks ago that seeks to free businesses from um, indoor capacity limits and mask requirements if local governments uh, order that. So it is a very interesting, intricate balance he's trying to strike here, and it's infuriating public health experts and Democrats who want to see him doing a whole lot more. And, you know, we know he's opposed to mask mandates. We know he's opposed to vaccine requirements. Um, that is not going to change. Um, he's also said repeatedly he's not going to do any more economic shutdowns. But there are other and we try to explore this, but there are other um, intermediary steps that he could be taking. Um, new incentives for public employees to get vaccinated, testing protocol, um, you know, even, even in the public sphere, uh, going out and going on a campaign like he did last year, right before football season, encouraging, um, uh, you know, particularly white Republicans to, 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 to take safety precautions. Uh, and to get vaccinated, and of course, wearing a mask in public, um, you know, which is something that he he has not really done lately. Uh, I was at multiple events with him over the last few days, and, and indoors, um, it's not something that that he's 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 likely to do. And frankly, you know, sometimes that it's it's a lot of folks are they're just starting to get back into the habit right now, right? Because we did it for so long last year, and now we have to do it all over again. And so it's a habit that folks are getting back used to. Um, but it is something that it sends a message to his party. And I think it's something that even if he wasn't facing a Republican primary opponent, this is, this is, this would be, this balance would be something he's trying to strike. But I think the fact that he does have to at least look over his shoulder a little bit and worry about a Republican primary um, does affect those decision-making 
thing, uh, techniques a little bit. Um, Karen, the announcement the other day that the governor is now offering financial incentives for state employees and state retirees to get vaccinated. He's now, uh, the, the policy will be that there's, what, a $150 visa-like gift card for uh, state employees who get fully vaccinated, or there's a something like $480 credit toward your uh, health care uh, policy if you get fully vaccinated. And I think I'm correct that that's kind of retroactive. If you're a state employee who already is fully vaccinated, you'll have that those benefits as well. And I think a lot of people applauded. Uh, the guy yesterday uh, on our show, uh, Senator Michelle Au, who herself is a physician, a Democrat, and has been very critical of Kemp, uh, said clearly, this is a great step in the right direction. And it does seem to be just that, Karen. I think so. And I think what you're you're saying is he's trying to find initiatives that he can mm. encourage people to take steps to look out for themselves and the community. Also in his address, and Greg could obviously speak to this better, but he really had an urging of a tone to get vaccinated because he talked about how he and his family are vaccinated and that it, it is an individual choice, but you need to make that choice because what could really ultimately happen is you could die from this virus. And he was pretty grave in that tone that you you know, you're making that choice and he doesn't want to see that happen for Georgia. And so please get out and then get the vaccine. Um, so I, I think he is definitely staying in somewhat a consistent messaging politically in that he has really focused on Georgia's economy and making sure small businesses and people could continue to have their livelihood um, shored up and taken care of. But I also think he's now seeing that these waves of changes come and he has to address them. I would also say that Governor Kemp's probably having to look at what Dr. Toomey had to state about those in the healthcare field who are trying to do their jobs and give the vaccines to individuals. They're being attacked and harassed and that can't happen. So it's his time, you know, to stand up and talk about those measures, not just incentivizing people, but taking care of the people who are really trying to protect us and care for us. Um, Adrian, uh, I think Karen just brought up a really important point. Greg, you, I think, reported on it as well. But, but Adrian, first, uh, we're now getting these reports from Dr. Toomey, who is the director of the Department of Public Health, uh, about uh, harassment uh, threats against healthcare workers who are going into communities to launch vaccine campaigns, and uh, talk about the partisan divide and uh, and how this continues to drive public opinion on the vaccine. That's truly horrifying to hear. Dr. Toomey says, as director of public health, I'm used to being the target of critics and people who har- want to harass me, threaten me. But these are healthcare workers who are trying to do their job, uh, Adrian. I mean, I guess I <clears throat> take issue with um, the idea that the governor says that, you know, he's trying to increase local control, right? I feel like um, if we had a stronger um, statement from the governor himself that was consistent and persistent, I think that um, people would be safer at the local level, right? I'm saying the inability to decide or the freedom to decide um, whether or not a business 
social distance or masks is taken away from our local officials um, and granted to the state. I'm seeing the same thing, of course, happening with the voting systems, you know, here and then last yesterday in Texas, um, where we're moving the power to the state and it leaves people at the local level feeling, um, I think, more free to bring violence or um, physical action when they are upset with what's happening on the ground. Um, and the fact of the matter is that people need the vaccine. And if we're going to have them in local areas for people like, to be able to get them, I think that there needs to be an atmosphere in which attacking those people is inappropriate. Greg, you reported on an event up in North Georgia where uh, uh, one of Marjorie Taylor Greene's former primary opponents was trying to go out and get people vaccinated and people just ignored or, uh, you know, had nasty things to say to him. Uh, they didn't vaccinate a single person, according to your reporting. Yeah, he was a very, this is Dr. John Cowan, he's a neurosurgeon who, yeah. who was the runner-up to Marjorie Taylor Greene in last year's um, Republican runoff, but he was a very lonely figure at that Republican event um, in, um, in, in, in early August. And, you know, what Dr. Toomey said on Monday just stopped me in my tracks because I've heard about vaccination-resistant efforts in, uh, you know, mobilized, organized vaccination-resistant efforts in California where there's a long history of an anti-vaccination movement um, and, and, and organization, but I hadn't heard it here in Georgia. And, and, and that's why it was so startling. I think, and Dr. Toomey hadn't heard it either. She said that she had only learned of it over the weekend and that's why she's only bringing it up now. Um, but it, it was, it's very concerning to the pu public health officials and nurses and, and hardworking staffers who were out there on weekends at nights, you know, whenever, just trying to get, trying to inch up that 43% number, just a few fractions even, because every shot counts, every every dose they administer counts, and to hear that they have been, you know, there's threatened with mobile text messages and social media messages, and then a mobile vaccination clinic in North Georgia, uh, not it wasn't this event in Rome, by the way, but but another one in North Georgia was forced to shut down is really startling. Um, so, Greg, I thought another. A positive sign in terms of the governors uh, taking this seriously in a, perhaps a more elevated way is suddenly Kathleen Toomey was out front a little bit more. For, for quite some time, our director of public health, who was a well-thought-of expert in this field, was really kept in the background, um, and, and it was the politicians like Kemp who led the way. I thought it was a positive sign that she had a prominent role in this last event. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, not so long ago, we led the jolt with the question, paging Dr. Toomey, where, where has she been? Yeah. And lately, she has yeah. been out and about a lot more. She's been doing media interviews and, and just yesterday. And, you know, in, in, in the episode that we just recounted about those vaccination clinics getting harassed, um, you know, I, I'm glad, I'll, I'll put it this way. I'm glad she was there because we might not have known about that. I'm not to say anyone's trying to hide it, but she's near and dear. This is very close to her, and she, she sees the data in a different way. Okay, uh, we got a lot more to talk about. Um, I'm going to take a break, but as I do, I want to read one more sentence or two from the editorial, um, which, by the way, we should give credit. I mentioned how glad I am that our colleague Kevin Riley uh, was certainly the leader of an effort like this, but Andre Jackson, the editorial page editor, uh, clearly had a role. Uh, I, I can only assume Leroy Chapman, managing editor, did too, so 
our thanks to them. And Sam, can we post a link to that editorial on our social media? Thank you so much. All right, here's what I want to read. Instead of seeking out dangerous lies or misinformation about the pandemic that falsely ring true to the ears of skeptics, they would do better to read the regrets of the wise man, Benjamin Franklin. We talked about this with Bill Fagey on our show last week. Ben Franklin lost his four-year-old son to smallpox in 1736, even though at that point, Franklin was an outspoken, energetic advocate of being protected, inoculated against smallpox. But Franklin wrote in his autobiography, I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years old, by the smallpox taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly and still regret that I had not given it to him by inoculation. If you're out there and haven't been vaccinated, or your children over 12 years old haven't been vaccinated, thinking about the words of Ben Franklin are really important at this moment. Please, please, get vaccinated against this disease that is killing thousands and thousands of people across the country. We'll be right back. A quick program note before I get back to our panel. You know, we're coming up on the long Labor Day weekend, the kind of the end of summer. We've been talking about so many problems, so many issues that kind of deaden our spirits as we discuss them, that tomorrow we're going in another direction. We are going to bring some joy, I hope, to Political Rewind. In a conversation I'm going to have with Joe Alterman. Joe Alterman is acknowledged by some of the greatest jazz artists in the country as the finest young piano artist of his generation. He grew up Jewish in Atlanta, and yet his music has been embraced by uh, people like um, uh, Oscar Peterson uh, <laughs> and many others uh, in, in that uh, 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 lead. Uh, uh, Ramsey Lewis is another of his, Ahmad Jamal. They all have come to love Joe Alterman. And Joe has a brand new record out. We're going to talk about his relationships with these great African-American jazz artists who have mentored him, embraced him, uh, and then talk about the fact that Joe is also the director of a Jewish music festival in Atlanta that tries to bridge uh, distances between uh, various diverse communities in Atlanta with the music that he brings there. So very different kind of show, but I think you'll be really happy to hear Joe. He's a terrific guy. Greg Bluestein. You know, when you grow up Jewish in Atlanta, there's only about two degrees of separation, and in this case, there's only one degree. I was Joe Alterman's camp counselor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm a huge fan, and, I, and, I, and a long time ago, I served on the board for the, the Jewish Music Film Festival, so super proud of to see Joe do so great work. He's, he's an exceptional talent, and we'll have fun with him on the show tomorrow. All right, Greg Bluestein, Adrian Jones, Karen Owen uh, with us for today. Karen, let me, let me go to you. Bluestein covered this event, and we'll bring him in in a minute, but let me start with you on this. Um, last weekend... Republicans had another big gathering, this time in Perry, big rally. Almost everyone who was running for office on the Republican uh, primary ticket was there, but not Herschel Walker. They, he was talked about more than anybody else. But Karen, here's another event 
that Herschel, now essentially a declared candidate, at least to the extent he's filed his paperwork, chose not to be at. What, at, a, at a certain point, Karen, he does have to show up, doesn't he? <laughs> well, yes. He's uh, filed his paperwork. He's declared he's running. He will want to start attending rallies and meeting with voters. But I also think we have to look at Herschel Walker from the standpoint that he has never run for political office. He's still trying to probably get his team together, know who everyone is that will be working with him. They're trying to probably figure out the best way to kick off Herschel Walker's campaign out there. And a rally may not be it. They may really want to. And of course, all you know, disclosure here, it might be best to be at a UGA football game. I think Greg's mentioned this before and others, but, you know, that's your home base. And why not kind of kick off there and have a rally to start talking to voters at that point? At this 8th district, I think it's interesting to see that this is the backyard of former Governor Purdue. He had a a great, um, you know, time speaking and and kind of talking to the base and making sure that they understood um, to treat and respect all the Republican candidates, including Kemp, um, very much. I think there's a lot of politics at play between all of these candidates and what they're lining up on the GOP side to do. I would note this. As a a political scientist, I think about the politicians and when they go to the rallies and what they're messaging. And in these types of rallies, we're seeing that home-style connection. How do we talk back to our voters in the district? How do we report what we've been doing? How do we um, really attract our message back to them or speak our message back to them, maybe I should say. So I think it's that home-style connection. And Walker hasn't served in office, so he doesn't have that piece yet. He's got to figure out the candidacy part and what he's got to do. I, th- I love that. I want to get back to the messaging that we saw at that Republican event in, in a minute. But I do want to continue on the Herschel story for just a second. Greg, uh, yesterday on the show, Leo Smith uh, uh, said, no question Herschel Walker's first appearance as a candidate will be on, on September 11th when the University of Georgia plays a big football game against who, Alabama? Is that the Alabama in Alabama? University of right Alabama, Birmingham. 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 Not, not the big one. Oh, oh, okay. Thank you. Thank no you. Thank is, you. That, is that right? You, he says you're the one who's telling everybody that. Oh, I'm not, but, but that's my gut, right? <laughs> um, I just, I, I, you know, it just, it just kind of makes sense um, from, from their standpoint. Of course, from our standpoint, the media, um, the worry, and, and from Republican activists I hear, is the worry that he'll do an under-the-radar, you know, he'll, he'll have social media posts, basically that his campaign will revolve around the three Fs, fundraisers, football, and Fox News. And, you know, you can get your message out that way to your, 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 your donors, and you can get your messages out to, to the, the masses that way. But um, you sort of <laughs> bypass some of these grassroots activists who have long played such an uh, instrumental part in the process. And that was some of the sentiment I heard uh, down in Perry over the weekend. Um, and it's a contrast from the other candidates. I mean, I was with Gary Black last night at his farm in Commerce, and I don't know, it seemed like two or 300 people were there. And Doug Collins endorsed him. Governor, former Governor Deal was there. Um, and he's directly talking um, to his audience. Now, of course, we're only weekend. Um, and Herschel Walker is not a veteran politician like Gary Black is, so so it is hard to, to completely draw that contest. If 
if if Herschel Walker is doing this in February or March of next year, then it'll be much more of a, a sharper problem. So we'll, we'll see how Herschel plays this, but I, I do expect him to be a, a focus at football games, maybe not UAB, uh, maybe not that first home game in, in about a week and a half, but, but uh, sometime over the next few weeks, um, I expect a, to, to have an excuse to go to Athens <laughs> for football games. For <laughs> Adrian, jump in. Well, it seems to me that Mr. Walker has a lot of work to do and that a Suez campaign might be the most effective, right, if he sort of stays um, above the ground floor, um, you know, creating his name recognition, um, indicating that he has a relationship with UGA and Georgians generally, because I feel like, um, you know, over the last year to Warnock has really got a base. Um, he's now got some experience in Congress. Um, I know they're pushing against uh, the Democrats in Congress and um, giving Warnock some hell a little bit about Afghanistan. However, um, I think he's got he's more plugged into the community. And so I think that if Herschel Walker is able to be visible on Fox News um, through football and fundraising, um, that this would be a way that he could uh, make himself um more viable as a candidate relatively quickly. So one thing I was just thinking as, as Greg was talking about the three S he mentioned is the other piece of this, which I think is, you know, Herschel Walker is being brought into this race a lot because of Trump's endorsing and think that Trump, well, maybe I shouldn't say endorsing, but Trump's encouragement and pushing for him to be a candidate. And I think Herschel Walker is probably experiencing a little maybe of what Kelly Leffler might have experienced when she ran, which is the national pool. What are the national Republicans telling Walker? How are they getting involved in the consulting piece versus how much is there a Georgia consulting piece going into Herschel Walker's campaign? I think candidates on the Republican side like Gary Black, Kelvin King and um, Lathan Sadler, they've got a lot of Georgia connection. They are playing ground politics like Georgia politicians have or candidates have. And I think Walker is getting probably two messages, some coming from the Georgia group and some coming from that national piece of what's best. And he'll have to balance that and figure out how he wants to run. And I think voters will also see that in the messaging that's coming from each of those Republican candidates, um, which, you know, which aligns to getting the national piece or what really makes sense for the Georgia group? What's going to be best for the home state? That's uh, interesting. Greg, I'm, I, let's pick up on that just a little bit here. So uh, contrast the messages that we've heard from Herschel Walker, very, very limited as they are at this point, with uh, what Kelly Leffler did. Back when Leffler was running for that Senate seat, she jumped in with both feet without hesitation before we knew a whole lot about how, where she stood on, on actual issues. She tied herself at the hip to Donald Trump. Now, part of that, of course, was because she was running against Doug Collins and he sort of forced her to go in that direction. Um, but it turned out to be a dangerous place to be uh, because in the runoff, uh, people rejected uh, Trump and the candidate affiliated with Trump. So far, Herschel Walker is, I mean, he's going to be tied to Trump because Trump's the one who's pushing him forward, but he is going to have to find some room between them, isn't he? And when you've got, a, you know, um, uh, a Doug Collins showing up for Gary Black <laughs> instead of for Herschel, that's fascinating in and of itself, given what an ally of Trump's 
Doug Collins was. In any case, how does how does Herschel uh, navigate that Trump scenario? Yeah, you know it's interesting because I don't think I don't think Herschel Walker's even mentioned Trump's name in the very limited yeah. public appearances he's had or in his public statements um, really since he got in the race. <laughs> then again, he also doesn't need to because people like like us are reminding people that uh, reminding the audience, the running public that he is Trump's favorite candidate. And everyone kind of knows that, you know, every headline basically said at Donald Trump's urging or the Trump back candidate gets in the race. So he might not feel like he needs to remind everyone he's Trump's dick because, because everyone else is reminding people that, but look, his, his entrance didn't mention Trump. His website does have a picture of him and Trump, but his, his messaging so far hasn't mentioned him. His really his messaging, as you were mentioning, was is very broad and very kind of vanilla. It's about the American dream. It's about you know strength, strong military. It's uh, it's about you know helping small businesses. It's it's nice sounding stuff that everyone can kind of agree on, um, and it's it's not very specific. And contrast that with what Kelly Loeffler did. And Kelly Loeffler was in a very different situation because she was the appointment who had immediately run for election, and no one had ever heard of her. Right, her name recognition was was probably in the single digits um, when when she was first loaded. I mean, people you know people most associated her with being the co-owner of the WNBA team, uh, the Atlanta Dream, which was struggling and and, and has had very limited attendance. So she wasn't some fixture in the in the Georgia political scene. So she immediately went out there and did listening tours all over Georgia, got her name out there, and also spent millions of dollars to raise her name recognition. A five million dollar ad buy within the first few weeks of her appointment just to get her name out there. Um, you know, Adrian, I've heard people suggest that Herschel Walker comes into this race as a neophyte in political campaigning, much the way Kelly Leffler did. But I think that's a false uh, comparison. Uh, Kelly Leffler, unfortunately for her, was really not accustomed to being in the public eye the way she had to be as a candidate for Senate. She was stiff. Her messaging was very pro forma. It was re- she repeated it over and over again, kind of endlessly. Uh, Herschel Walker knows what it means to be out in public. Herschel Walker can be a very charismatic uh, guy speaking in public. I think it's it's very dangerous to think there's a similarity there. Uh, I'm not so sure about the similarity, and I think that he can bring a charisma that will draw people. At the same time, I think that his mission will be similar, uh, like to the Loeffler's, um, Kelly Leffler's ads and her debate style, right, and her repetition. I mean, she did it in a static way, but I feel like Herschel Walker is in the race to do that in a more charismatic way. Um, whether he wins or not, the point is to challenge Warnock, um, to have a black male candidate doing so. Um, and I think that more than just his policy agenda is going to be his um, ability to bring attrition to support for Warnock um, and also serve in this um, visually, you know, descriptively, he is also a black man running for office in the state of Georgia. Um, and I, I feel like just at the like at the RNC convention, um, we saw a lot of black people um, speaking in an effort, I think, to sort of bring some bridge to this racial polarization that is evident in um, Trump's base, right? I mean, I understand that 
voters, even Democratic voters who are anti-Black, anti-trans, anti-homosexual, um, all of these people are folks who are Trump supporters, and these are the folks who are going to, you know, who the GOP wants to uh, encourage to vote against Warnock um, in the opportun- in the instance that there's an opportunity to get him out of that Senate seat that he just was able to achieve. So I think Herschel right. Walker's um, job is a little different. Greg, uh, let's talk about a couple of other interesting things that happened at this event. Um, I think we have sound that we can play. Um, Sonny Perdue, uh, it's it's interesting. If I read your story on this correctly, Greg, um, when Governor Kemp was introduced, unlike at other events, he mostly was received very positively at this event. But he has in the past been getting boos and heckled by Trump conservatives at various events. And Sonny Perdue got up on the stage at this 8th District event and had this to say about the governor. Folks, I want you to be as passionate as you can about your candidate, but don't get mad. These are intra-squad scrimmages. We are still on the same team, the best team in America, the Republican Party, and the Georgia Republican Party. Let's remember that. And so, I want to challenge you, I want to exhort you, I want to beg and plead with you today that you support your candidates over this next year. You get out and work hard for them, you support them, you, if you believe they're the best candidate for the job, you do everything you can to elect them. But be passionate, but don't get mad. Um, what was missing there was he said, treat Governor Kemp with respect, uh, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. He went on to say uh, that being a governor is a really tough job, and uh, Brian Kemp deserves your respect. Brian Kemp will, will, uh, in his words, will, you know, if you, if you text him, he'll text you right back. He's very approachable, all that, and that he deserves the crowd's respect and honor. Um, and the crowd, to me at least, uh, you know, I didn't hear any boos or any heckling like I've heard at past Republican events, including that Rome event that we were just talking about earlier in the show, where, where the governor got, got heckled. Um, and, you know, there's a lot going into that. I mean, first of all, Sonny Perdue is one of Trump's biggest supporters. You can't not be, if you're in his situation, because he was Trump's agriculture secretary for four years. Um, so he is one of the Georgians who is the few Georgians who actually can claim a very close stake, close relationship with the former president, who is, as we all know, has vigorously opposed <laughs> Governor Kemp's uh, reelection and is somewhat obsessed with Georgia. Um, and, and secondly, you know, factoring into all that is the fact that Sonny Perdue is still a, a, a somewhat, uh, well, still an active candidate for chancellor of the higher education system, a, a position that Governor Kemp cannot decide on his own, obviously, but has, has exerts a lot of influence over it. So there's a lot going on here. And the third thing I'd like to say, too, is that uh, he's also first cousin to David Perdue and Trump. The Trump forces are trying to talk David Perdue into running against Governor Kemp in the primary. So a lot going on <laughs> right. with, with that, with that right. speech. That's exactly right. There's a lot to unpack there, and I want to do a little of that, but we got to get to our final break of the show. We'll come back and talk more about the rally in Perry.
Karen Owen, uh, picking up on what Bluestein said just before uh, the break, among the, the interesting elements of Sonny Perdue defending Governor Kemp, not only that he's still hoping he'll be named chancellor of the University System of Georgia, your boss, Karen, uh, but this notion that his cousin, David Perdue, the Trump forces, Trump allies, keep kind of prodding David Perdue, hoping he'll run against Brian Kemp, the governor who refused to support Trump's contention that the election here was fraudulent. Uh, there's no sign that David Perdue really is going to do that, but it does keep tension going there between Kemp and the Trump forces, yes? I think it keeps allowing Trump to have a say in local state politics. And um, I think if my memory serves me correctly, David Perdue's senator was one of the first allies and friends to President Trump mm-hmm. when he came into the White House. And so there is a friendship, some kind of you know relationship there that it makes sense he would encourage that. But I think a lot of it is just President Trump. From, you know, he still wants to be involved. He still wants to be a part of these conversations. Um, I think the Purdue family has to all figure out exactly how they still want to be relevant and play in Georgia politics, if that's, you know, former Governor Sonny being chancellor in many ways, and if it's David Purdue looking for another office. You know, I will say that hearing the former governor speak and the tone he did, it reminded me of our old style of politicians, where it was much more of, you may not like the person, but we respect the office. We have to do these things in a way where we openly debate, but we're not mean about it. We have civility. And I heard that piece a little bit coming back, which I think for some of us maybe is a little reassuring that partisan politics doesn't always have to be divisive. Um, And that may be a little bit of a shift. And we'll see if that continues at other rallies. I would also say that I was not at the eighth GOP rally, but I did go do a little research over the one in northwest Georgia. And I think some of the boos that came at Governor Kemp were also just people who were Vernon Jones supporters, that it wasn't just an all Trump little base that's mad at Kemp, but it was really a standout of Vernon Jones people wanting to show that there was no support for Kemp, that they were the ones getting support, which is that inner party squabble going on. Greg, you know, I think one of the things it's important to point out to listeners who may not kind of register this the Purdue family is one of the real great dynasties in Georgia politics. And we haven't had a dynasty like them for quite a long time. So their power as cousins uh, has had an enormous impact on state politics. Yeah, and we don't know if they're, they're going to last generations like the Talmadge dynasty did in Georgia. Um, but look, I mean, and it goes beyond those two um, those two politicians. Um, we all know that Sonny Perdue helped persuade Trump to endorse Brian Kemp back in 2018 yeah. through the runoff. Um, and there's numerous high-ranking operatives, very influential behind-the-scenes operatives that are close to both the Perdues. We're talking Nick Ayers, Paul Beneke, um, mm-hmm. Austin Chambers. These these are these are these are national Republican operatives. Um, and in Nick Ayers' case, who have very close ties to not only Donald Trump, but also Mike Pence. Um, and so they have uh, enormous influence in the state Republican Party as well. Um, Adrian, we are running out of time, but there's a story. I'm going to just ask you, uh, uh, bring, mention it to you, and, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to talk about this in great detail on a later show. But the, the United States Supreme Court 
uh, took a non-action overnight that has tremendous implications uh, for abortion or the woman, a woman's right to choose. They refused to step in to stop a Texas law from taking effect that bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, which is a period of time that many women have no idea they're pregnant. And they've, the law was crafted in a very clever way that it's uncertain how anyone can sue to have this overturned. And, and although the details of this may not be something that are immediately familiar to a lot of us, uh, the fact of the matter is with the Georgia law, the Texas law, the Alabama, Mississippi, uh, um, there's no question that a woman's right to choose in the months ahead when the Supreme Court does start taking up these cases is going to really be in the balance, yes? I agree. Um, I personally am disappointed that abortion is such a strong political issue because it's, in my mind, a health issue. People need to be able to make a choice. And um, I think it's frightening, particularly for poor and marginalized people, um, to be in situations where they might not be able to exercise family planning because it's not available by law. And so, um, you know, we're also concerned, of course, about the viability of the Roe versus Wade line of decisions. And I can only hope that the Supreme Court will err on the side of um, giving people the option to have a choice. Um, uh, Karen, jump in on this. Uh, just for a minute, we want to talk about this because it's so important. Well, I think what my first inclination was that what we're seeing is why it matters who's appointed to the United States Supreme Court and the mm. conversations that they have during their confirmation hearings and how they express their interpretations or their way of looking at the law. And that will play out in cases like this. They're going to look to see what the legal arguments are, and then we'll see how the court will really settle this. And it's really a lot based on who's sitting in their seats. There are many people who already are saying that the fact that the Texas law was allowed to go into effect already uh, overturns, at least temporarily, Casey, which, which, which said abortion up until viability was still legal. So we're going to watch how that plays out. I just wanted to mention it briefly, although we don't have time for a fuller conversation, but certainly in the weeks ahead, it's an important story for us here in Georgia, where we have a very restrictive abortion law in place. That's it for us on Political Rewind today. Karen Owen, Adrian Jones, Greg Bluestein, what a pleasure to have all of you with us tomorrow. The great planet piano artist Joe Alterman joins me. I hope you'll be here to see him as well. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask when you're indoors, please. And if you're not vaccinated, read the front page story editorial on the AJC and see why you should do just that. See you all tomorrow.